0: You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. Good morning again. Good morning. No, again. Morning. Okay, thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, I just wanted to say one thing um, before we get started. Thank you for singing. Thank you for singing. I don't know if you, you get thanked a whole lot for that, but like we're commanded over and over again in Scripture, through the Psalms, through some of the minor prophets, through, uh, I mean, all the way up through the New Testament, we're commanded to sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs to each other, to sing, to lift up our voices and praise God. And uh, this is one of the things that I, I don't get to lead worship much anymore. I used to do it every Sunday. And when I do, it is just so awesome to hear you guys sing. So thank you for singing. Um, in America uh, Western culture, not not all American culture, but Western culture in America um, tends to be very reserved. And uh I just love hearing you guys belt it out. So just thank you for that. Um, today we're pretty excited. I'm excited. I don't know if you're excited, I'm excited. Woo! You know why? Because we're starting the minor profits. <laughs> he's literally love that hang there, and he's <laughs> like hey. hey, hey. Yeah. Minor Prophets. Who here has ever read the entirety of the Minor Prophets before? Raise your hand if you've read the entirety of the Minor Prophets before. Okay, those of you who have not raised your hand, I'm not going to shame you or anything like that. I'm telling you, this is your chance. We are going to start this week. We're going to move through all of the Minor Prophets throughout this summer. Join us, whether you're here the whole summer or not, it's okay. Just join us in reading all of the Minor Prophets. And I have uh, in your little bulletin uh, thingy there... Off to the left, that is the order we're going to be taking these minor prophets in. Although one might switch depending on uh, you guys, might actually get Matt Kanowski to get up here and preach, which is you know the guy who leads leads worship. He's shaking in his boots right now and trying to figure out whether or not he's going to do that. And there may might be a shuffle, but that is the order we're going to be taking the minor prophets in. Nick has arranged the order. I'm pretty sure it was just based off of his favorites. No. How did you? How did you arrange them? Uh, I try to figure out the chronology. Yeah. Of them. Yeah. This is historical. Order. Pretty close to historical order. Although we're going to take a look at this today. Um, throughout the summer, because we're a little bit smaller of a group, we don't have all the college students. I'm going to do a little bit more uh, teaching, and uh, we're going to teach. Well, I'm going to teach you how to understand things, how to look at the minor prophets, and how to look at them. Um, I was doing some research this week, and there's a quote that's been rattling around in my head quite a bit, and it's going to come up on the screen right now, the next quote right there second slide, here we go and there it is, boom, the Bible is a beautiful diamond with 70 faces you must turn it over and over until you begin to see its true beauty, that's been that that came out from a, a French Jewish rabbi in the thousands, in the 1000s he said the Bible is a beautiful diamond covered with 70 faces in order to see its true beauty you must turn it over and over and over and over That is how you, that's how you actually, this is how you read the scriptures. The scriptures are, the Old Testament is, Jewish meditation literature. Okay, we think a lot of times it's narratives, we think a lot of, yes, there are certain genres in Old Testament, but it's... The whole thing is Jewish meditation literature. So you're supposed to be meditating on it through and, uh, throughout the day over and over and over again. The prophets of old, what they would do, I was just studying this this week. The prophets of old, their prayer life, their prayer cycle, they would wake up and they would say the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6.4. They would say the Shema five times a day. Um, but additionally, after the second Shema, what they would do is they would concentrate on the um, on the opening pages of the book of Ezekiel. These are the later After Ezekiel writes this prophecy, they would would meditate on, and the Pharisees would do this a little bit later in Jesus' day, they would meditate on the opening pages of Ezekiel, thinking about the glorious creature on the throne. If you've never read Ezekiel, you should read this passage, and it's this crazy passage about this glowing figure on a chariot with like spinning wheels and angels inside of it. And they would meditate on that, and they would literally envision themselves looking higher and higher until they could get to the face of God. And that was their prayer cycle, saying, God, thank you for being this this burning fire. Thank you for being this, give me your burning fire. Give me your passion. And so they would, they would pray through these things. They would meditate through the scriptures. And that's the way we're supposed to be reading them. That's the way we're supposed to be understanding them. So today, what I'm going to do in way of introduction, then we're going to jump into the book of Jonah, is I'm going to give you a few tools really quickly. So as you embark on this journey of reading through the books of the Minor Prophets, you can have these tools with you in order to actually understand some things in them. So there are four major things that you need to look at when you're looking at minor prophets, or actually any prophecy. If you notice when you're reading the books of prophecy, um, occasionally the, the paragraph formatting in your paper Bibles will change. I'll turn. If you want a, a good example of this, turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. Go ahead, go ahead, do it. If you don't have a Bible, it's fine, there are some in front of you. But Isaiah chapter 6 is a really good example of this. So in Isaiah chapter 6, the paragraph formatting starts off block paragraph. You see that? And it's an introduction, and it says, In the year that a King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and lifted up. Then if you notice, in verse 3, it shifts into centered formatting. You see that? And then goes back into paragraph formatting, and then later on in verse 8 goes into centered formatting. Every time it goes into the centered formatting, that's indicating a poem. Or a song. And we don't read that when we're reading our normal scriptures, right? So whenever you're looking at the prophets, there are certain times where it's going to be poetry. And there are certain times where it's going to be commentary. And you're switching back and forth between poetry, song, and commentary. And so to read this, you have to understand it through the lens of poetry, song, and commentary. The commentary is explaining the stuff. The poetry is the stuff that's kind of coming through, that they're just writing these poems about God and what they're seeing and the word that's coming to them from the Lord. And we're supposed to be gathering things from that, and then the commentary explains some of that. And so here are some of the things that I want you to know as you read through the Old Testament Prophets. These are four major things. Uh, Number one, you need to know timeline. Okay, timeline. And you can get this through biblehub.com. You can get this through, um, you can go to bible.org, which is one of my favorite websites. You can go to Bible Gateway and look up an introduction to the book. Also, we're going to give you a tool here in just a second, but you've got to look at timeline. When was this, when was this written? When was this person speaking? At what point in time in Israel's history was it? Were they exiled? Were they in the middle of an exile? Was it before the exile, before some warring uh, army came in and took them away? Second thing you need to look at is the speaker of the prophecies. The speaker makes a big difference. Today, we're going to actually get the hardest one to understand who the speaker is. Because it ain't Jonah. Even though the book's named Jonah. But what you're going to have here is you have to look at the speaker. Who are they? What was their education level? What was their occupation? What was their language? It all makes a huge difference. See, Ezekiel, Ezekiel's a priest. And he's receiving prophecies. And all of his prophecies have temple imagery in them. They all look like the temple. And so you have to filter that through the lens of a priest. Amos, on the other hand, shepherd boy, right? He's, he's this guy who's uneducated, and he uses uneducated language. His prophecy is very simplistic. Next, you have to look at the prophecies not for, like, roadmaps of the future, because that's not really the way that the authors were intending it. They weren't talking about roadmaps for the future. They're building imagery. Imagery of who God is and how He interacts with the world around you. And then the last thing is to meditate on these. To think about them deeply and to turn them over and over again like that 70-faced diamond going, okay, I gotta read this again and again and again. They're really short books. They're actually quite easy to read over and over again. In fact, Jonah, our, our first one today is how many chapters? Four chapters. That's it. It takes you like uh, maybe ten minutes to read through this. Maybe. You could read it. Six times in an hour. And think about it, each different time differently. Each, each time differently. Unfortunately, with Jonah, we've had quite a bit of, um, we're just going to call it vegifying um, to this particular book. It's been often kid-oriented. Jonah appears in every, 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 every children's Bible. Every one. Yet they leave out lots of other things that are sometimes more... Like, I've never seen in a children's Bible Mount Sinai. Where God actually... Like, there's this wedding ceremony between Israel and God. Like, there's this beautiful thing that happens. I've never seen that in a children's Bible. Apart from the Action Bible, which is really cool. And the Brick Bible, which is also cool, but PG-13. So, please be careful on that one. Don't just buy it for your kids like we did. (laughs) I mean, you can, but it's pretty great, yeah. Is yeah, disappear. viewer discretion is advised. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, with those tools, I want you to be able to go to the scriptures and learn about what is going on in the Old Testament prophets. But on this mo- during these mornings, during these sessions where we're going to study these prophets together, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to introduce them by way of a video. Okay, and so uh, before before we click this, Jamie, I want you to fire up the uh, sound here. But there is, uh, there's is, I've, I've talked about this a lot, that you can jump in right now to the Read Scripture app. And you can read, it gets you on a plan to read through Scripture in a year. And the Read Scripture app is integrated with some wonderful Bible teaching videos. And each one of the Old Testament prophets has their own video. We're going to steal those videos and play them each and every Sunday. The first one is going to come up in just a second. It is nine minutes long. So just so you know, it's nine minutes long, but I'm just going to give you a full overview of all of the book of Jonah, and then I'm going to jump in, capitalize on a couple things, and we'll go on our merry way. So are you guys ready for the video? Got your popcorn?
1: Yeah.
0: Nope, there's still donuts. So, Alright, here we go, video.
1: The book of Jonah, a subversive story about a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. Jonah's unique among the prophets of the Old Testament because they're typically collections of God's words spoken through the prophet. But this book doesn't actually focus on the words of the prophet. Rather, it's a story about a prophet, a really mean and nasty prophet. Jonah appears only one other time in the Old Testament. It's during the reign of Jeroboam II, one of Israel's worst kings. And Jonah prophesied in his favor, promising that he would win a battle and regain all this territory on Israel's northern border. Now, it's important to know that the prophet Amos also confronted Jeroboam. And through him, God specifically reversed Jonah's prophecy, promising that Jeroboam would lose all of those same territories because he was so horrible. So before the story of Jonah even begins, we are suspicious of Jonah's character. The book of Jonah has a beautiful design with all this literary pairing and symmetry. So you have chapters 1 and 3 telling the story of Jonah's encounter with non-Israelites, first with some sailors and then with Jonah's hated enemies, the Ninevites. And each part offers a comic contrast between Jonah's selfishness and the pagans' humility and repentance. Chapters 2 and 4 contain prayers of Jonah. One is a prayer of repentance, kind of, and the other is a prayer in which Jonah chews out God for being too nice. Now, this careful design of the book is matched by a really unique style of narration. The story is full of all of these stereotyped characters who, ironically, do the exact opposite of what you think they would do. So you have the prophet, the man of God, who rebels and hates his own God. You have the sailors, who are supposed to be really immoral, but actually they have soft, repentant hearts and turn to God in humility. You have the king of the most powerful, murderous empire on the planet, and he humbles himself before God because of Jonah's five-word sermon, and even the king's cows repent. This kind of story fits what today we would call satire. These are stories about well-known figures who are placed in extreme circumstances, and they use humor and irony to critique their stupidity and character flaws. Let's just dive in, and we'll see how all the pieces work together. The story opens as God addresses Jonah and commissions him to go preach against evil and injustice in Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, Israel's bitter enemy. But instead of going east to Nineveh, Jonah goes in the opposite direction, finding a ship going as far west as you can go to Tarshish. Now the big question here is why? Why does Jonah run? Is he afraid? Does he just not like Ninevites? And we're not told yet. So the man of God tries to run from God, and he boards a ship full of pagan sailors. He goes down into the ship, and then he falls asleep. So God sends a huge storm to wake up his prophet, while ironically the sailors above board are wide awake to everything that's happening. They can discern that there's a divine power at work here. So they throw the dice, and they discover that Jonah, he is the culprit. So they ask Jonah to explain himself, and Jonah spouts off a whole bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo. He says, yeah, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God who made the sea and the dry land. What a joke, right? God made the sea and the dry land all right, and Jonah's dumb enough to run from this god by getting on a boat? And when the sailors ask Jonah what they should do, he says, kill me, right, by throwing me overboard, which kind of seems noble at first, until you realize this could actually be his most selfish move yet. I mean, what better way to avoid going to Nineveh? So he puts his blood on these innocent sailors' hands by trying to force them to kill him. They're reluctant, of course, and they repent to God even as they toss him over. The storm subsides, and they end up fearing the God of Israel, and unlike Jonah, they actually worship God. But God foils Jonah's plans to escape Nineveh. As Jonah's sinking, God provides this strange, watery tomb for him, the stomach of a large fish. Now, of course, under normal circumstances, this would be certain death. But in this story, everything's upside down. And so Jonah's submarine death becomes his passage back to life. Cramped in the stomach of this beast, Jonah utters a prayer. Where he never technically says that he's sorry... But he does thank God for not abandoning him, and he promises that he will obey God from this point on, no matter what. And God's response is quite comic. The whale vomits Jonah back onto dry land. So once again, God commissions Jonah to go and preach in Nineveh, and Jonah complies. We're told that Nineveh was a gigantic city. It would take days to walk through. So Jonah gets one day in, and here is his message. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. It's five words in Hebrew. Now, his sermon is very short, and it's also odd. I mean, look at what's missing. There's no mention of what the Ninevites have done wrong, or of what they should do to respond. There's no mention of who might overturn them. And most noticeable, there's no mention of God. What's going on here? Has Jonah intentionally given the bare minimum of information? It's like he's trying to sabotage his own message or ensure the Ninevites' destruction. There's just no effort on Jonah's part here. Whatever his motives are, the plan doesn't work. Because no sooner does he utter this five-word sermon that the king of Nineveh, the entire city, including all its cows, repent in sorrow and ashes. So for the second time, these evil pagans show themselves to be more responsive than God's own prophet. So God forgives Benidavites, and he doesn't bring destruction on the city. Now, here's the brilliant part of the story. The last word of Jonah's short sermon, overturned, means just that, turned over. And it can refer to a city being overthrown or destroyed, like Sodom and Gomorrah, but it can also be used as something being transformed, like turned over and changed into its opposite. And so, comically, Jonah's words actually came true, but not in the way that he intended. Nineveh does get turned over as Jonah's enemies repent and find God's mercy. The final chapter brings all the pieces together. Jonah he's fuming mad, and he utters his second prayer. He first tells God why he ran away back in chapter 1. It was not because he was afraid. Rather, it was because he knew that God was so merciful. And this is great. Jonah actually quotes God's own description of himself from the book of Exodus, and he throws it back in God's face as an insult. He says he knew that God is compassionate and that he would find some way to forgive these horrible Ninevites. You can just hear the disgust in Jonah's voice. Jonah then cuts off the conversation and he prays that God would kill him on the spot. He'd rather die than live with the God who forgives his enemies. Fortunate for Jonah, God doesn't comply and simply asks if Jonah's anger is even justified. Jonah ignores the question and he goes outside the city to camp on a nearby hill waiting to see what might happen you know the Ninevites might repent of their repentance and get roasted after all what happens next is very odd God provides this viney plant to shade Jonah from the sun and that makes him quite happy but then God sends a tiny worm to eat up the plant and so Jonah loses his shade and there in the heat of the sun Jonah asks again that God kill him so God again asks Jonah if his anger is justified and Jonah barks back absolutely just let me die And those are Jonah's last words in the story. God's final words are what concludes the book. He says that this whole vine incident was an attempt to get through to Jonah, right? Jonah got all concerned and emotional over this vine, which he only enjoyed for a day. And, God asked Jonah, you know, aren't humans a bit more valuable than vines? I mean, isn't it okay if God might feel the same kind of emotion and concern for the city of Nineveh that's full of thousands of people who have lost their way and also their cows? And that's how the book ends, with God asking Jonah for permission to show mercy to his enemies. And what is Jonah's answer? The story doesn't say. Because that's not the point. The point is that the book is trying to mess with you. And God's questions here are actually addressed to you, the reader. Are you okay with the fact that God loves your enemy? And so this book holds a mirror up to the one who reads it. In Jonah, we see the worst parts of our own character magnified, which should generate humility and gratitude that God would love his enemies and put up with the Jonah in all of us. And so this strange story actually becomes a message of good news about the wideness of God's mercy that ought to challenge us to the core. And that's the book of Jonah.
0: Now, wasn't that helpful?
1: Yes.
0: Now, there, there's so much in there, actually. I mean, if you think about it, think about how we have, how we have treated, think about how we have treated in our Western culture the book of Jonah. Just think about it. Think about the veggie tales version. Think about your children's Bible version. What's the point of all of those things? The point is, the, the fish? Actually, oftentimes it is. The, the, the point is often, well, God sent this miraculous fish to save Jonah. No, no the, whole, the whole point is God getting at Jonah. This is a, a wild, a wild different view, wild different take on Jonah. And it is very accurate. If you start reading, if you read it through this lens now, you're going to go, oh my goodness, everything makes total sense. The, the fact that the cows repent and roll around in ash after the king like puts ash on his head and sackcloth on and all that type of stuff. like It's just ridiculous and ludicrous imagery that's trying to get at a wonderful point. A wonderful point that God is after you, and He's after you in such a way that He is going to do. He's going to do incredible things. He's going to involve you in the incredible things that are being done, and it's going to lay open your heart. It's going to lay bare your soul. What a powerful, powerful message from that book. Now, if you uh, like, we like we saw in the book of or in the, this video. Um, this is a rather unique book. Going back to some of our tools, the timeline is really actually pretty hard. It's definitely after Jonah appears in the New Te- or in the Old Testament, because it conjures up this imagery of this not-so-great prophet. But it also, we can't quite tell who the author is. It's not Jonah, of course, because it's a story being written about Jonah. And it technically doesn't even fit into a book of prophecy, because it starts off as a narrative. Even though it says right off the beginning, right? Like the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, son of Amitub. And that's the way that all these prophecies start off. And then it just drops into this narrative. And so it's a book that kind of defies a lot of our ability to kind of pinpoint it. But one of the things we do know is that it is chock full of this imagery. It is chock full of some of the emotional stuff that's going on. And as you meditate on it, you look at it in different lenses and different lights. You turn that diamond over and over again. You begin to see the beauty that's in it. And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to show you something that I tend to focus on a little bit as I read this. This isn't mine. I didn't come up with this. This is, I mean, I'm, as we're studying, as you're turning things over, as you're listening to people talk about things, this is just something that somebody turned my, my view onto and then you can't not see it. And so I'm going to show you this. And it's a, it's a theme that runs throughout the book of Jonah that has to do with height. Yes, height. Not that Jonah's, you know, a short guy, that would be Zacchaeus or whatever, right? It's not about how tall he is, but it's about position, positional themes. And this happens in the Old Testament all the time. So open a Jonah book, uh, book of Jonah chapter one, um, if you haven't already, or open up your app and scroll to it, or download the Read Scripture app, and use the Read Scripture app to find Jonah right now, and then you can get on your reading plan. Um, by the way, just to give credit to this, these guys uh, that do these videos are from a website called the Bible Project. And if you want to get on the Bible Project and and just soak all of their resources up, it's gonna it's some interesting stuff and wonderful wonderful stuff. So what I'm gonna point out to you here is that. Jonah is like he talked about he's the upside down prophet. He's a, he's a flip-flop of everything. And this this upside downness also is highlighted in some of the ups and downness. The ups and downs of Jonah and Jonah gets trapped in a lot of ups and downs. So if you open to chapter 1, the very first thing that God says is he says and it's actually lost in your NIV, but it does say this. It says rise up and go to this great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me, right? So this is the command. Hey, Jonah, get up, rise up, get yourself up and go. In the very next line, Jonah rises up, and that's also not in your NIV, but it is there. He rises up to run away from the Lord. So you have two ups right at the beginning of this, right? Like God says, hey, get up and go to the city of Nineveh. Rise up, be courageous, and go to the place that I will tell you. And Jonah is like, Huh, I'll get up, I'll show you. And he gets up and bolts the other direction. And so it starts off with this pairing of, hey, get up. He's like, I'll get up, all right. But then from there, you'll notice the direction changes. In verse 3, But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. Now Joppa actually is lower at sea level, right? So he's actually heading, he's descending, but he heads down To Joppa, And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to free from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone where? Below deck. He had gone down even further, where he did what? Laid down and fell into a deep sleep. You see? All of the imagery, it's all going down, he goes down, he goes down, and he goes down. Fell into a deep sleep. And the captain goes to him, wakes him up, and uh, and you you just heard this part of the story, but eventually the men, Jonah, they have this discussion in the belly of the ship, and next thing you know, Jonah's thrown into the sea and where is he going? Down. Even further. Until the fish comes and swallows him and takes him where? Where? Even down further, right? And then down at the bottom of all this, this is chapter 1, down at the bottom of all this, at the end of chapter 1, it says, But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was, and is actually supposed to say, deep inside the fish for three days and three nights. And he's down further and further and further. And in chapter 2, then this picks up a little bit. This is where Jonah feels low, right? He's feeling really low. But what he does is he actually raises his eyes to the heavens in the depths of the sea. And then the fish spits Jonah up. Spits him up. That's the direction of the spit in the in the text. So he spits up Jonah onto the dry ground. He vomits him up onto dry ground. And then in chapter 3, what happens is Jonah ascends. He says, "Go." and the second time, this comes up from chapter 3, verse 1, the second time the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and he says again, rise up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and proclaim to the message I give. Then this time, it doesn't say Jonah rose up, it says Jonah obeyed. He just did it. He just did it. But he gets up and he goes to Nineveh. And the word of the Lord, it rises up to the king. The king is the highest of all people. Nineveh happens to be a hill city that's way up on top of a hill. And he's marching up to Nineveh, and he preaches the word of the Lord. And it says that the word of the Lord reaches the ears of the king. It ascends to the throne. And what does the king do? It's in verse 6 of chapter 3. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he did what? He rose up from his throne. And then where does he go? He lowers himself right onto the ground rubs himself with ashes, tears his clothes and puts on sackcloth. He humbles himself and bows before the Lord of all. And then, not not only does the king do that, but the entirety of the city lowers itself, and the cows are bowing down, and all of this is happening, and Jonah is standing there, angry. And we find out in chapter 4, that God... That Jonah goes and he he crawls up onto this hill. He moves up, right, to look down upon the nation that just humbled themselves. And God raises up this, He raises up this tree and then cuts it down. And then we're left with that picture. What does Jonah do? He exalts himself before God in false humility saying, Lord, if you would just kill me right now, just strike me down. Do what I tell you to do, God. Strike me down. That's the fiercest position of them all. Standing in front of the face of the Lord, shaking your fist, saying, Do what I tell you to do and bow to my will. That's where we find Jonah. That's the end of it. And God simply, like the video pointed out, God simply says, Hey, is it okay that I'm kind to people? Jonah? Oh, great Jonah? God even lowers himself and humbles himself. Now that's this is what I mean by turning these things over and over and over again. If you keep turning this, you will see some things in these books that are unbelievable and, and really powerful. So I'm just going to I'm just going to say a few things about this little passage and then we're going to move forward. Um, last week we talked about remember last week I started off the sermon saying uh, admitting to you confessing to you my greatest fear which was that I would give you enough room enough latitude to have a meh faith to have meh Christianity that you would come here on a Sunday morning and I would leave you with the option of walking away going eh whatever. That is a great fear of mine. But yet another fear is not just allowing you the possibility of meh Christianity, but allowing you the possibility of a situational faith. A situational faith. A situational faith rises and falls. It's like a roller coaster. It goes up and it goes down. It goes up and it goes down. And when you're here, it's up. And when you're out there, it's down. Or vice versa. Maybe when you're out there, man, it's up. And when you get here, it's like... But your faith can be like a roller coaster. And I remember um, these periods, I remember these periods happen quite often in my life, but I remember a period of a long period of time um, when I was in my 20s where this was the case. It was more of this chasing after an experiential Christianity, an experiential faith in which, oh man, I feel so close to the Lord when I'm singing or when I'm serving or when I'm doing all these things. And then when I walk away from that and I'm back in my... Um, paint store or whatever I was doing at the time, I felt so far from the Lord. And it was all feelings based. And it was up and it was down. And it was up and it was down. And one of my biggest fears is that that would be the norm for you and for me. Our job, our our goal, is not to have a roller coaster faith, but is to have a highway faith, right? Like nice and flat, nice bendy curves until, unless you're in Mandan, there's that weird curve in Mandan, North Dakota. In case you ever drive it's like straight for like seventeen hours, and then there's this one curve, and you're like, "Whoa, I'm gonna go off the road!" <laughs> Don't know what I'm talking about, huh? It's there. I live in Mandan. Yeah, it's there. I got pulled over in Mandan four or five times. I know it's there. Well, <laughs> this is yeah. So our job is not to have this roller coaster faith, this situational faith. It's to have a nice leveled highway of faith where we are cruising. We're moving forward. We are. We are going. We are not. Up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. In fact, this is what the book of Jonah, I think, is getting at. Is that, is God our God simply when He's agreeing with us? Is God our God simply when He's agreeing with us? My, my question for us today is a real simple one. My question for us today, and I think I'm going to pull it up on the screen, is, is the Lord your Lord? Especially in the ups and in the downs. Or is it reversed? Because I think that in, an, in, a, uh, in a roller coaster faith, that's what's the struggle, is it's reversed, where actually, I'm God, and God's job is to agree with me. And when He's not agreeing with me, therefore I must have done something wrong, so I am at a low. Until I fix something so I can control and manipulate God to continue to bless my, my plans. That makes us the authority, and it makes God the responder. Is the Lord your Lord in the ups and downs? This question, I know it sounds simple, but it really matters because if God's job is to endorse our lifestyle... Or to endorse our way of living. Or to endorse our plan for our life. Or to endorse the work of our hands. Or to endorse our governmental systems. Or to endorse our five-year plan. Or to endorse our budgets. Or to endorse our job. Or to endorse our vehicles. Or to endorse our family and our family choices. And our family practices. Or to endorse our church and our church plans. If God's job is simply to endorse our plans, then why do we need Him? Why do we need Him? Why do we need them? It always reminds me of the illustration that gets passed around all the time about a missionary coming to the United States and hanging out with uh, several pastors at this bigger church. And they take him around for a week, and they get to show him all of these cool things, this big, huge building, and all of the ministry that's happening in it, and all of the people who are being fed out of it, and all of the people who are being clothed out of it, and all of the Bible studies, and all of the youth groups, and all of the college groups. And at the end of the week, the missionary looks at the pastors, and they go, what do you think? I mean, we just showed you everything And he's like like, man, you can do a lot apart from the Holy Spirit. Because we can confuse good planning, good marketing, good communication, and good programming with the power of the Holy Spirit. But is the Lord your Lord when everything falls apart, when the wheels fall off? When the church isn't busting at the seams, when things are moving and shaking, when maybe your family is not doing so well or somebody has uh, had some sort of their nose has been bent out of shape and all of a sudden they're estranged from you or you're facing some sort of physical ailment or all of a sudden you have a financial hit that you can't take care of. Is God your God in those things? Is he the one who you get to say, thank you, Lord, for bringing me into this, because now I can trust you to get me out of this. This is exactly what the Psalms are all about. If God is God, if the Lord is your Lord, everything changes. You have someone not only to trust, not only to call on, not only to reach out to, not only to cling to you have somebody to actually look at, but you also have somebody to look at and say, hey, this is your doing and you need to help me with this because I don't know what I'm doing it gives you the ability to actually lower yourself and say, I have the foggiest idea what's going on here, God you need to help me out see, if God is God, if the Lord is your Lord You have someone to petition to when things don't make sense. You have someone, you have some bearing in this world when someone knows better than you and will come and tell you the truth. right? Like, Have you ever been lost before? Like whether it's physically lost or emotionally lost and all you need is someone to come and help you figure this out and then you have a good trusted friend sit down and say, hey, let's make sense of this together. How does that feel? It's like a lifeline. This is what happens when you admit that God is God and I am not. We go, God, hey, I don't understand anything in this life. Please speak to me through the power of your word. Please tell me the truth. I want to listen to your truth. Help me reorder this and help me organize this. When God is your God, when the Lord is your Lord, that is what happens. Without this, without having a God to plead to, without having a God to come to, without having a truth teller to come and listen to, without having someone who is more powerful than us, higher than us, who has a, a higher standard and a higher line of sight than us, without this, then this, without that, this place can get overwhelmingly dark, overwhelmingly dark. Because then you're left with your own emotions. Or your own friends to endorse your version of the truth? Or your own five-year plan on your own little kingdom? Or your own political party to battle against your enemies? Or whatever. This is a life that can get dark. You guys know this. This is a life that has the fabric and foundation that allows you to be able to sit at a distance in the darkness Angry and waiting for God to strike down anyone who disagrees with you. This is a question that really matters. Is God your God? Is the Lord your Lord? Can He do whatever He wants in your life? Have you ever prayed that prayer? Lord, do whatever you want in my life. I've prayed that a lot of times and I don't know if I'm, I'm probably at like, I don't know, 5% times that I've meant it. (laughs) I'm like, God, do whatever you want. Except don't take this, don't take that, don't take this, don't take that, don't move this, don't do that. I have these laundry lists of things that God can and can't do that will ultimately push me away from Him or test my faith in Him. And I'll threaten Him with that sometimes. and be like, Lord, if you take that, mm, I don't know. I might have to walk away. I might have to stop moving. I might have to stop following you. Like I ever could, right? But I threaten it. I don't know if you're like me or not, but that happens inside of my heart. God, don't you dare take that away from me. But if the Lord is your Lord, can He take whatever He wants? Can He move you anywhere He goes? Can He shift you and shift your faith and shift your heart? Can He take your job? Or have you bought the lie that all, that many Americans have, that God doesn't do that? That God doesn't do that? God is after your heart just like He's after Jonah's. He put Jonah in some wild circumstances where Jonah had to be confronted against his greatest enemies, the people that he hated the most. He had to be confronted even with the God that he despised. And he couldn't get away because that was the Lord's will in his life, to get at his heart. And so I just ask you that. Is the Lord your Lord in the ups and the downs? Is He Lord of your schedule, your relationships, your finances, your five-year plan, your heart, your life, your soul, your strength, your future, your family? Is He Lord of all those things? Because then, if He is, when He calls the shots, no matter what the cost, you gotta go. You gotta move. You gotta act. When He says, hey, Go to the person in the cubicle next to you and ask them if they could use some prayer. It's not the moment to say, well, God, I don't know if you've thought this through because, uh, you know, they don't really like you and I don't really trust you. Right? Like, that's not the conversation you have. You say, okay, I will go and I will do that. I will go and I will move and I will obey and I will follow. And it doesn't make sense, but I will do it. Is the Lord your Lord in the ups and the downs. So we're going to sing a song about how powerful God is. And this is a moment to be able to realign your heart. This is a, to, this is a prayer where we're singing and we're praying at the same time. Where we're laying our lives down saying, Lord, do whatever you want. And mean it. <laughs> Lord Jesus, We come before you today. I come before you today. I don't want to be Jonah. I don't want to be Jonah commanding your will, commanding your plan, commanding your love for whom I think you should love and whom I don't. Lord, I don't, I don't want to be Jonah. So whatever you're doing in this process, in my life currently, where you're trying to get stuff out of my heart, Lord, take it out. Take it out. Help me to trust you. Do whatever it takes. Lord, I pray for my friends here today. That you would give them the courage to pray to you and say, do whatever it takes, Lord, to get everything in my life. Do whatever it takes. I give You permission. And I anticipate You moving in my life in powerful and sometimes disturbing ways. But I pray that we would have faith. That we would have eyes to see that You are moving. That You're not moving just to get us to pass some sort of test in order to bless us. That You're not moving in order to, I don't know, try to try to work at things we're doing wrong or whatever, but You are just trying to get at our hearts to help us to see that You are a, you are a powerful God who wants to be with us and wants to walk near us and who wants to include us into what You're doing. Lord, give us eyes to see that. And we give You this in Jesus' name.
1: Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.